So we're looking uh, today at why there is light at the end of the tunnel. We're looking at that because we're uh, looking at Matthew 28, where uh, we're gonna, it's a passage where Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And it is uh, the focus of, of that passage is on the hope that there is through the resurrection. And we're looking at that because we're in a mini-series called Jesus the Savior. We're finishing that one up. And it's part of a larger series uh, that we have been doing that is taking us through key passages throughout the whole New Testament. So as I prepared uh, for today's sermon, I thought of one of the passages that we referenced last week, but we didn't go into in any depth. Uh, it was in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9 where the Apostle Paul says, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And if you wonder, what is this that had happened? You go back one verse. What does this refer to? In one verse, it says this. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. And then he said, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We can rely on God because he's a God who raises the dead. And that's what this passage is about. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Why is there light at the end of the tunnel? Whatever tunnel we might be in, whatever struggle we might be having, why is there light at the end of the tunnel? It is because God raises the dead. There's hope beyond the worst that can happen. So Matt Woodley, he's a pastor and an author, and he tells a story in a commentary on Matthew, tells a story of a, an attempted prison break from San Quentin years ago. So the guy came up with the bright idea of jumping in with the dirty laundry, hoping that he would uh, get thrown in one of the trucks and taken off the premises and, you know, right out the gate. The, the only problem was the, the laundry was all done on the premises of San Quentin. And so he just took this really stinky long ride from one building to another, never escaping the prison until he got back to his own building got out and headed back for his prison cell. Well, he wanted something better. He had this dream of, you know, reaching something better. And instead he felt just trapped. And Matt Woodley says that's kind of a metaphor for our lives. We, we dream of something better, but sometimes we find ourselves, or we actually always find ourselves in this, in this world trapped in, in, in a prison of sorts, of our own making and of other people's making. And so this is what he says. Uh, Woodley says, Our best storytellers, spiritual and political leaders, musicians, filmmakers, and writers keep us dreaming about a world filled with justice, hope, and freedom. But like that inmate, we keep living in this world filled with injustice and, um, and lack of freedom. But he says, what if someone broke out? What if someone broke out and actually came back and said, we know how to get out, I know how to get out, and I am going to lead you out if you'll only follow me. Now, of course, there's been thousands of prison breaks throughout the history of, uh, of, the, of, of humanity, thousands of prison breaks, and I would guess that there has never been one where someone escaped from prison and came back for all the other prisoners to tell them, here's... Here's how you can get out. But the story of the gospel is a story of God electing to, first of all, enter the prison through the incarnation. And then when he breaks out, he comes back 
through the resurrection to lead out the very people who are not just in prison, but the very people who tortured him and rejected him and abandoned him and executed him. The resurrection is why, is the, is why there is light at the end of the tunnel. And we're going to drill down into that a little bit as we look at this passage in Matthew 28. And we're going to see how the darkness, the resurrection, through the resurrection, um, we go from the darkness of death to the, the lightness of life. How we move um, from the darkness of fear to the darkness, to the light of joy. And how we move from the darkness of failure, some of our deep failures that we, we live with and that weigh us down, but that we can move into acceptance and forgiveness and love from God. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. It's page 999 on our Bibles. And if you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, is the, uh, the new international version. That's what we're using. Uh, if you're new here, by the way, uh, you hopefully got one of these new here brochures on the way in. On the inside is a sermon application guide. It's got some of the main ideas from the sermon. But most importantly, it's got, if you've got kids down at the children's wing at the King Kids Ministry, uh, it's got questions because they're studying almost every week the same passage that we're studying. They're studying this passage. So there's some questions there for you to interact with them. And there's reflection questions because this is about bringing the story of God to our daily lives. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, where it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. He's put in a tomb. This is on the third day. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while, he, while, they were, while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Why is there light at the end of the tunnel? It's because in the resurrection, we move from the darkness of death to light, to life. Now, the ultimate darkness is death. That's the ultimate darkness. And the resurrection is 
first and foremost about moving from death to life. And when we speak of moving from death to life, it speaks of moving from physical death to physical life. But the resurrection is also about moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. But the focus here for right now, what I'm talking about, is moving from physical death to physical life. Because when Jesus was resurrected, we learn later in the New Testament, he was like the first fruit, the first of a harvest. So a harvest is coming, but he's the very first beginning parts of that harvest. And we're told because Jesus is raised and because he is the first fruit, we're going to follow. There are other, other resurrections. His people will also be resurrected. It's only the beginning. Other resurrections will follow. But there's something really interesting in the way that this story is told that I had not, I had not seen before. And uh, what I want you to notice is, is in Matthew's sequence, now, if you go back and read it, you'll see this. I'm not going to do that, but I'm just going to tell you. In Matthew's sequence of events, the women witness everything that happens there. It's like they are there when the violent earthquake comes. They are there when the angel shows up, this blazing angel, and he rolls the stone. They are there, and the angel says, you're looking for Jesus and he's not here, he has risen. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always had the idea in my mind that the angel shows up, rolls the stone away, and Jesus walks out of the tomb. That's not what happened. When the angel rolls the stone away, Jesus is already out of the tomb. And just to support that is in Luke's gospel and in John's gospel, we see that Jesus just passes through walls which I'm not even sure that that is a correct way to describe it. Um, <clears throat> it might just be better to say that Jesus doesn't need doors in order to get into rooms or out of rooms. Uh, he, he can be in one place and then he can be in another uh, in his physical resurrected body. Now, since, since that is fact, in fact the case that the stone isn't rolled away so Jesus can get out, why? is a stone rolled away? And the answer to that is pretty easy. It's, it's for them. And it's for us. It shows that, it shows us and them that Jesus' resurrection was a physical resurrection. It's not like his dead body is still in there, but now they're experiencing some spiritual manifestation of Jesus. No, Jesus is alive. Now, it's physical, but it's a new kind of physicality. And again, later in the New Testament, it's explained. It's the first root of the kind of resurrection that we can expect. It's physical, but it's not physical as we understand it. It's a new kind of physical, physicality. Now, that's super important that Jesus was raised physically. And, and it's so because it, it, it plays into a theme that's throughout the whole story of God. So when God creates the world, he creates a physical world, right? He creates Adam and Eve. He doesn't just create them and say, just play or pray or, you know, kind of float around doing whatever you want. He gives them a job to do. They actually have a job to do. And they're given a leadership position. They're, they're, they're meant to have dominion over the earth, which doesn't mean taking advantage of the earth. It doesn't mean misusing the earth, and it means leading out. They're given this job to do. They're told to procreate, and procreating is made to be, by God, a pleasurable thing. And so, um, it's, so when we get to the end of the story, 
the end of the story of God, and we're told that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, there is no reason to believe that given the creation of a physical earth and a physicality that God has called us to live, physical lives, that that is holy and good, given that Jesus is raised physically, it means that when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, that is not meant to be taken as a metaphor of a spiritual reality, as if, no, it's just going to be. Our destination in Scripture is not heaven as we oftentimes think of heaven. Our destination is a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to have a physical aspect to it. And that has enormous implications for us today because it means that Christianity is not about escaping the world. Christianity is about redeeming the world. Christianity is about escaping this life Uh, trying to do as little as possible or really just being really spiritual and in our heads. Christianity is a very physical kind of faith and we're meant to live out our faith in a physical way. So in the resurrection, we move from darkness, um, from the darkness of death to life. We have hope for life after death And we have hope now, not only because that's coming, but because everything is being redeemed even now. God is redeeming our lives. But in the resurrection, we also move from the darkness of fear to joy. Now, throughout Scripture, and this is a huge theme in Scripture, God has a really interesting way of moving us from fear to joy, and it usually begins with terror. When God wants to move us from fear to joy, it usually begins with terror. Everything in this opening scene is calculated to strike terror in all who witness it. Um, Let me just give you a few examples. So, completely unnecessary, but we have an earthquake. And it's not just an earthquake, it's a violent earthquake. It's described as a violent earthquake. An angel comes to roll back the stone. Now, in Scripture, most of the time when angels are seen by human beings, they are in the form of a human being. Nothing scary about them. Most people don't even realize that they're talking to an angel. But this angel is blazing, all right? So this, is, this, is, this looks like a, this is going to be a very scary angel. It's going to be like this, this power that's coming down, this, this, this being that is blazing white, And then, just a little touch that I just absolutely love, uh, because angels seem to have an attitude. Um, When he rolls the stone away, he doesn't just stand there, he sits on it. Now, that may not sound like anything, but I just want you to picture the scene. And when you picture the scene, you realize this is an attitude. It's kind of like, hmm. You know, he kind of gets up there and he's kind of like, yeah. Um, I am a powerful being. And everybody is afraid. I mean, the guards, when they see this, they can't even speak. I've seen this one time in my life. I've told the story before. I'm not going to tell it now. But we're, we scared a kid so much on a camping trip that he couldn't move, and his throat became constricted. And so he was like, Aah! that's the only noise he could make. And, and so, and he loved it, by the way. He, he absolutely loved it. Not, not at that moment, but for the rest of his life, he's still telling that story. And so... So the angel is sitting on the stone. It's very ominous when an angel is sitting on a, on a stone. Uh, and there's so many ways that this could have been done in another way to minimize the fear factor. But this maximizes the steer, fear factor. It wants everybody seeing it to be filled with terror. Now, why, 
Would that be so? Why would that be so? There's all kinds of reasons, but let me give you the simplest reason. It goes back to a refrain that's found in the Bible over and over and over again. I've listed the texts in your outlines. It is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's why when God wants to fill us with joy or with wisdom or with anything, it almost always starts with terror because it's the beginning of wisdom. The angels tell the women, don't be afraid. Jesus tells the women, don't be afraid. So after the initial terror, he wants to bring them down. He wants to calm them down. They don't need to be afraid. But the fear of the Lord, the moment, that moment of seeing the awesome power of God um, it, it is the beginning of wisdom. It's where we start getting wise. Why is that? Well, it reminds us of just how big God is, of just how powerful God is, of how holy God is. I mean, that's, that's what people in the scripture, when, they, when God manifests himself in some way, almost always, they not only fall on the ground, they're not only you know, filled with fear, the women fall on the ground when they see Jesus. They're, they're clasping his feet. You can't do that. They're not, they're not like, ha, ha, ha. They've fallen on their faces when they see him in fear. He says, do not be afraid. Um, when, when, we, when, we recognize, when, when, when we recognize that time and time again, the reaction is not only fear and terror, but please turn away, God, because I'm a sinner. That sense that I am, I am not worthy to be in, in close proximity to such a holy, beautiful being, um, which is God. And so that, that, that moment when we recognize that and then we survive and we hear the words, do not be afraid, what happens is, is that we recognize God's grace and God's mercy that he did not crush us with his holiness and with his beauty. Um, God, one of the, and, and then the, the, the next thing you begin to realize, and it's what God is trying to teach us each time, is not only that he's holy and he's powerful, but that he will use that power for our good. That we can count on the fact that he is not just powerful, but that he's good and he'll use that power for our, for our good. He's dangerous, but he's good. Now, there's a couple of tools. Um, I, this is a bonus. I didn't get this. I didn't do this last night. So those of you who are in small group with some people who come on Saturday night, like my small group leader, you're going to have to inform them of this. All right. So um, a couple of tools. One quick, quick tool is think about fire. And you, you can do this on your own. I'm not going to do it for you. Think about fire. Think about this, how all the things that fire does that are good. You know, from, from warmth to refining things, purifying things. Uh, to cooking, oh, just think about all the good things that fire can do and then think at the same time how dangerous it is. It's dangerous, but it's good. Now, it, it only goes so far as, as a tool or as a metaphor uh, because fire is inanimate and you can't say fire is good in character. God is good in character, but that's, that's a tool. Another, another tool, you've heard, a lot of you have heard this before, but it's that interaction between Susan and, um, and I keep wanting to say raccoon, the beaver in Narnia. Okay, so Susan is about to meet, and it's just a tool that you can use with your kids. This can, 
Remember, uh, we, we want a tool to help us understand a biblical concept and not just to be able to understand it, but to be able to explain it to someone else. And we would want our teenagers to be able to do that as well. So this, this is a great tool. So Susan is talking to the beaver. Beaver says, you're going to meet Aslan. And he's the king. And he's a lion. All right, so Aslan in the Narnia series is a Christ figure. And so you're going to meet the king. And all of a sudden Susan is, I, I thought he was a man. I didn't know he was a lion. He goes, yeah, he's a lion. She goes, well, am I, am I going to be safe? He goes, of course not. <laughs> he's saying, he's a lion. I just told you he's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. So in a sense, don't take it for granted. Don't, don't, don't look at Aslan and go, oh, he's just a tame little lion, you know, that kind of a thing. Like a kitty cat. Not a kitty cat. All right? He is dangerous. But he's good. And that's why... You know, you, you, the characters, when they come, it's like dangerous. But he can say, no, no, you, you do not be afraid. And that's what you have going on here. Now, knowing that about God makes you wise. It makes you wise. And if you don't know it, if your understanding of God is a very tame God, we talked we sang earlier about the lion and the lamb. That's when we talk about Jesus. He is the lion and the lamb, not the teddy bear and the lamb. All right. The lion and the lamb. Don't defang him. Don't tame him. Because if you tame him, you will not be wise. You will not be wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I, I don't I don't like it. I, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable when people say, well, the fear of the Lord, that bothers a lot of people. Oh, you know, how can I fear God? I don't want to fear God. I want, I want a God that, you know, just holds me and everything. And guess what? He does. He does do all those things. But I don't want to think of him in fearsome terms. And so people, oh, no, no, don't worry. It's only talking about respect, respecting God. That's true. It's talking about respecting God. But if you take fear, the fear factor out of it, you are, you are not reflecting who God is, number one, and number two, what the scripture teaches about God. Now, interestingly, God not only wants to take the fear out of us by saying, don't be afraid. He doesn't want us to live in terror of him, kind of like, oh, he's approaching him in terror. He doesn't want that. He just wants to remember he is terrific. <laughs> um, I don't know if that really terror, terrific. I don't know. I just made that up. But, but he wants us to not just not be living in terror, but he wants us to be living in joy. So he wants to turn our fear into joy. And no better passage for this than back to the beginning of the story. So we're at the resurrection. We've been, we're kind of celebrating Easter today. So let me give you a little bit of Christmas to match the weather outside. All right. Uh, this is from Luke uh, chapter 2. And here's what it says. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Typical in Scripture. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, he is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
the lion of Judah, come as a baby lying in a manger. So what keeps us from experiencing the joy of the Lord? Well, one of the things, most of the time I would say, it's that we don't get this. We don't, we don't appreciate it. That the fearsome, all-powerful, holy God is also our Savior. We just begin to take it for granted or we just never, never really appreciate it because we think too highly of ourselves and we think too low of God. We think we're holier than we are. We think God is less holy than he actually is. How do you, how do you increase joy? Well, one of the primary ways to cultivate joy in our lives is to know God's power, God's grace, reflect on God's grace, especially in light of God's power. So to know and reflect on God's grace in light of God's power, holiness, and justice. We, we just can't really grasp grace and how great it is until we understand, frankly, how great it is. We won't get it. And it is a cause for joy. And by the way, in every area of the church, it's through, true throughout church history. I see it everywhere where I turn today um, as I follow uh, different writers and articles and all kinds of stuff in books. In every era of church history, there are people that are bothered by the fearsomeness of God and they want to tame God and they want to take away that part of God that is, that is a God of justice, a God of judgment, a judgment that grows from, uh, from love, a judgment that grows from recognizing what we do is serious, taking us seriously enough and the mess and the pain that we cause, it, it, a God that takes us seriously enough to be a God that judges. Um, and, and they just want to take it away, want to rid the Bible of all of that to make it more, more acceptable to the masses, to make it more easy to digest for people who are highly sensitive. We live in a world highly, highly sensitive. I mean, there are a lot of sociologists that are talking about this now. Is like the number one thing is safety. And so parents, number one thing, safety for my kids. And then a whole generation is growing up where safety, I mean, according to sociologists, could be wrong, safety, 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 and then they make a correlation between safety and, um, and greater in younger generations right now, one of the highest rates of, of, of depression. Uh, tied to this safety, safety, safety. Delayed adolescence, uh, good side to it, uh, less sex, drugs, smoking, things like that. Downside of it, depression, loneliness, and there's other factors, of course, but it's this, this, this safety. And so to make it palatable to people, we take God and we, we shrink him down and we make him less scary than he is. He's dangerous. He's dangerous, but he's good. And that's, that's the witness of scripture from beginning to end. So okay, one more. In the resurrection, we move from the darkness of death to life, from the darkness of fear to joy, and also from the darkness of failure to forgiveness. There's just a beautiful line in this passage. It's easy. When I read it, it would be easy for you to just gloss over it. Um, I, want you to, I want you to remember uh, what happened a couple of chapters earlier. We looked at it, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in Matthew 26, Jesus is arrested, and it says all the disciples abandoned him. And we didn't look at it a couple weeks ago, but we also know that when he gets arrested, Peter, 
uh, abandons him, but then comes at a distance, and he's following, and as Jesus is being interrogated, Peter is out by a fire, and he gets interrogated because people recognize him as being with Jesus, and he begins cursing at them and saying, no, I don't even know the man. All right, so <coughs> that's what happened just two chapters earlier. But did you notice what it says in verse 10? Look what it says in verse 10. Then Jesus said to the women, do not be afraid. Go and tell, here it is, my brothers. Really? The ones who abandoned you? The ones who have never believed you? The ones who have already given up on you, even though you told them over and over again? They saw your power, and you said you were going to die, and you said you were going to rise? Those are still your brothers? Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Go tell my brothers. There's a family bond when we know Jesus personally. When we receive Christ and we become children of God, and Jesus becomes our brother, we become brothers and sisters to one another. There's a family bond that you just can't shake that easily. There's a family bond with God that you can't shake easily through abandonment, through denial, through failure. There is forgiveness. And there's forgiveness that's based on what Jesus came to do on the cross. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, the, the whole second half of the chapter really is this theme, but here's a shortened, shorter part of it. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can read that passage or you can just look at those four words that summarize as well, summarizes it well. Go and tell my brothers. Let's pray together.